Hey everyone and welcome back to The Deep Dish, a space where voices will be amplified, respected, listened to, and where the only requirement is that your belief and actions do not hinder the progression of the disenfranchised. It is my hope that my conversations with these incredible guests will be the sweetest treat in your day. Let's get to it. Um, so I was sitting in my room and I was trying to think of the very first time that we met. Um, and I could not put an exact date to it. I was like, I can't remember when I first met you, um, when the first time you even entered my life, um, because in my mind, you've always been in my life. And I think that that started with our parents. I think there's just always been this, um, big amount of love between our families. Um, and so I, I probably think you'll agree with that. But I want to introduce my guest to Dr. Natalie Perry. She has an extensive background in pedagogy and student services. She earned her BA in African American and African Studies from Ohio State University, a master's in education and teaching and curriculum from Harvard, and a PhD in higher education from the University of Virginia. There's many amazing things that I can say about Dr. Perry, but I'll just leave it at this. She's the realest of the real, the self-proclaimed Beyonce of her block, (laughs) the incomparable NPJ. Natalie, I am so excited to welcome you today on The Deep Dish. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I am so excited for you to be here. can Can you remember when we met? I was trying really hard to remember like meeting you for the first time, but I just have a very clear remembrance of you as a child and you were always so together (laughs) and I know as when I was younger and had like braids and cornrows and things like that I only got beads on special occasions but you had beads for every outfit I was like wow this is a responsible person (laughs) because I could not be trusted with my beads but yours are always like color coordinated and lined up it's like Dad, this person is like 30 years old at the age of three. <laughs> Ethel. Ethel gets all the things for that. But yeah, I was really trying to think about when we met. But I just always, I mean, I, I really tried to think about it. And I was like, Natalie has always been in my life from my mind's eye. And I just feel as if I, you know, I feel like Chanel and I were those annoying little cousins that would follow you everywhere. <laughs> like when there was a when there was a church function, we're like, where's Natalie? You know, so, um, yeah, I, I don't even know how long I've known you. <laughs> I'd say I'll just go ahead and say forever. Yeah, um, because I don't know. Like I said, I don't know the day, but I have a, a couple of strong memories. One was just you as like a super young person with the with the beads and then the other one was when your family was moving. And I remember that being super heartbreaking for you. And I just so remember sad. hugging you and telling you that Maine was a nice place mm-hmm. and the people were nice. And yep. I used to live there and you're going to love it. And you were not buying it. But <laughs> I was, <laughs> was not. I was like, you were lying to me because you're no longer there. <laughs> so yeah, I just remember hugging you really hard that day. <laughs> Yeah, got me through. I'm not even joking because I was not having it. Um, But I'm so excited to have you on today. And so, you know, here at The Deep Dish, of course, it's baking related. And so I always start off the podcast asking my guests, what was your favorite childhood dessert? My favorite childhood dessert 
it's not necessarily something that was baked, but I loved it. It was chocolate pudding. It was so basic. It was out of the box mm. on on the stove, just um, with the powder and the milk and stirring it. And always, you know, started with a wooden spoon. I have the very, very clear memory of even the pot that it was made in. And as a baker, I guess you would be very familiar with like ramekins, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In my household, there was only one use for those, and that was for a pudding. Really? I did not I did not know until adulthood that people baked with those. I thought those <laughs> are just pudding dishes. Pudding dishes. What's your favorite childhood memory with chocolate pudding? I don't have a specific memory, but just somebody making pudding, whether it would be like my dad or my mom. I don't know what the occasion would be. And just seeing it go from something that looked like hot chocolate to just stirring it, being patient, and then it starts to thicken up. The best part would be pouring it into the ramekins and then the pudding skin happening. Mm-hmm. And so you could eat it like when it's hot, fresh up, like fresh off the stove, but it's even better once that pudding skin got on it. And that was the best part of it. And so that's a big time comfort food for me. And I always enjoyed licking the spoon after it got like pudding skin on it. Maybe I just like pudding skin, but <laughs> chocolate pudding is, is it. It just reminds me of, just reminds me of family because we would make it. We had four dishes, four people got it. It was four of us at the time and mm-hmm. it was just enough. It was just right. It wasn't any seconds or overindulgent. This is what we we're going to get and yeah. enjoy it. And so you said pudding is still a comfort food for you. Yes, I'd say all through my life. <laughs> I think you're the first person or young adult person that I had access to that I knew was in a PhD program. You're the first person I knew that was going that route. Like you're the first person I knew mm-hmm. with a PhD and what that was. And I think that's because, you know, my mom was like, she's going to get her PhD. Like, you know, my mom, my mom, you're big. My mom's a cheerleader for Natalie. I think you guys, my mom loves herself some Natalie. Okay. And I think that I still, (laughs) this is so, this is not, this is not an Ethel appreciation Mm -hmm. show. However, (laughs) I remember when I went off to college and she gave me the cutest purse. It was like, it was like kind of Indian inspired. Mm -hmm. It was like red silk and it had all these Bath and Body Works things in there. I was like, oh. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was just so proud that you were. And so that's when I looked into what a PhD program was like. What is that? Mm. So one of my questions for you is what compelled you to pursue a career in education? It is wild. It is not even what I had planned for myself when I went off to college. I wanted to be a speech therapist. And that's what I studied when I was in school when I got to college, I started taking classes in African American studies because there are all these general education requirements that people had to fulfill to get their degree. And I realized there was always something in African American studies, and I would probably like it more than anything else. So that's what I did. And then I ended up majoring in that. So when I graduated, I moved back home to Worcester, and I wanted to get, in order to work in speech therapy, you need to get a master's. And so I wanted to work on my master's in speech therapy while uh, just like on the side part-time. And the best route that I thought there was for that was through substitute teaching. So I went into the school department. I said, I wanted to be a substitute teacher. They asked me what grade. I said, whatever, wherever there's need. And they said, okay, we'll send you to the high school. And they said, any particular subject? And I said, no, just wherever there's need. This is just like a day-to-day thing. 
I went in, I showed up at the high school. The principal asked me if I spoke Spanish. I said, no. She asked me if I like science. I said, not really. And she says, oh, well, we need a history teacher. I said, I love history. She said, we need a history teacher. Not, we need a substitute today for history. We need a history teacher. Oh. <laughs> and oh. I was, like I said, I was 20 years old when I graduated college. I walked into the, walked into that building, same age as some of the students in my class. And I became a teacher. She says, yeah, you can watch Miss So-and-so for today. And uh, we'll have your class roster ready by the end of the week. <laughs> I had signed up to be a day-to-day substitute teacher. I thought somebody had the flu, was out sick, that type of thing. And so it was all in. It was kind of all or nothing at at that point. And it was wild because I was teaching in the same city where I grew up in, but it was Mm. just on the other side of a zip code line. And it was completely different than the education experiences that I had. Growing up, I didn't have any black classmates. So to see a classroom full of kids, but they didn't have any books or they didn't have a ceiling or they didn't have walls in between their class and the class next door. I just said, this isn't right. It was it was just the type of thing that I had learned about. I thought only happened in the past. I didn't realize it was happening present day right underneath my nose. And so I said, the least that these students can have is a good teacher. And so from that, on, that point on, I just decided to devote myself to becoming the best thing that these students could have, students in those types of backgrounds. And that's where my original interest in education came from. And I've always been inspired by my students and do things thinking about that first group of students that I had or students I was having along the way worrying about, you know, what their futures will look like and what challenges they might face and just how to make the world a place that they can navigate without drama or with less drama. Yeah, because I mean, when I look back on the infamous questionnaire that people love to say that I made that was difficult, one of the things that you mentioned is that you're passionate about overcoming. Yeah. And so, so was that, was that sparked by that experience? Seeing the differences in your, you know, from your educational experience to what you are now teaching? In some ways, yes. I'm always super inspired by students that can come from backgrounds that have things that are kind of stripped away from them and people who are able to get through against all odds. But in a very selfish way, sometimes life doesn't go as you want it to or as you expected it would, and you continue to live. And so that's the type of overcoming that I'm super passionate about because especially thinking about working with students, people all students always make plans. And I tell students to make plans in pencil. Mm. It's good to make a plan, but you got to have an eraser because you can't be so rigid with yourself that you don't give yourself like the flexibility to grow in unexpected ways or to learn from challenges that are also unexpected. So in your experience, you know, when life is unfair, how do you overcome those Like, what are the things that you do to overcome something? I usually start out pitching a fit, you know, uh, same way you would like want to send food back at a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And that quickly exhausts itself. And when you look and you realize you are living and life is ahead of you and you, you have to keep going because dwelling in the past or dwelling in something that didn't go as planned isn't worthwhile. So really being able to 
let go, acknowledge what's happened, acknowledge what, you know, would have been I like ideal in your mind and let go. And it's really cool because the more distance I get from different situations or circumstances, I say, Ooh, yes, I am. I'm glad I did not go that way. Or, you know, thank God I dodged a bullet, that type of thing. And yeah, just, I just know that I, I just know that, you know, I don't know what's best for myself. Maybe, you know, 15 year old Natalie doesn't know what 30 year old Natalie should be doing. I, I wouldn't trust my plans as an adult to my childhood self. Mm-hmm. So being able to be uh, reevaluate on the spot. And I think sometimes it's really helpful to have people call it like a, some people call it like a, a council or like an executive board. And I often think of like my friends as that. And sometimes they listen. Uh, that's their job. And sometimes mm-hmm. they give advice. Sometimes they connect me with other people. But the whole thing is getting me unstuck, you know, from that moment. Acknowledging the moment, but not letting me dwell there too long. And I think it's really helpful to have those types of people in your life. Uh, you know, many of those people are in my family and some of them aren't. And so how does how do you sometimes allow yourself to not problem solve? If that's in a, you're always in that constant state. That is such a really good question. And sometimes there isn't, sometimes the problem isn't mine to solve. And so there's this, I had this job one time and it was all about problem solving, even though that wasn't in the title, but everything that happened, there was this book that guided what we did. It was like called the problem solving method. And the first step is problem identification. And sometimes people like jump to like, resolution without appropriately identifying the problem. But once you figure out what the problem is, then you kind of figure out who owns it. If it's mine, it can't all be mine. You know, do the part that's mine, find the partners and share and share the work. And then if people don't identify themselves as it being part of their issue, help them see that my success is their success. You know, that whole collective, you know, movement I think is really helpful in doing things because we can't do everything ourselves. We can't take it all on alone, whether I'm advising students or working with faculty or staff, telling people, you know, not to try to save the world, do your part, identify your part in this and identify the other actors. And then how can you build a coalition to have a team help you lift this mold? You know, um, back to the questionnaire, one of my favorite questions, (laughs) question three, especially Uh from you. Question three, it says, ask your best friend how they would describe you, then write their answer below. And I want to read just a little bit of it, okay? Um, And the part that stuck out to me the most, uh, other than she's, you know, your best friend saying, she's serious, but funny, but seriously funny, genuine, thoughtful girl. This was an (laughs) eHarmony profile. (laughs) We try, if you hear these qualities and you like these qualities, don't email us. Um, but no, email her. Email her. Oh, email me. Email me. <laughs> but your best friend says you appreciate things that others overlook. Can you can you expound on that a little bit? I don't know what specifically she is talking about, but I am a very reflective person, very introspective person, potentially to a fault. And I think that mm-hmm. might be what she's talking about. One of my ways of like finding calm or like slowing things down is taking care of plants. And people ask me why. And I said, because it's so simple. If you just give them water and light and the right temperature, it'll do what it needs to do. 
I used to have dreadlocks and I used to like fret all the time about when's my hair gonna lock, when's my hair gonna lock. And the woman who started my locks, she said, your hair's gonna lock. That's the natural curl pattern. It, it wants to be in knots. So you don't have to worry about it. And so I think that has encouraged a certain type of mindfulness in me and just like an appreciation of certain things and an ability to take on a different perspective. I know that, um, you know, I have a lot of friends with kids and I just appreciate it. It's like, oh my goodness, thank you for having all these children. Now I don't have to have any, Mm -hmm. you know, this friend in particular, she has four and I was like, oh, let me know when you get tired of one, just send them my way. I'll give you a break. And I love to do that. And she talks about like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that the kids are so loud. And I'm sorry that this is, I was like, you prayed for this. Like you prayed for this family. You prayed to have a house full of children. Don't ever apologize for the children, like living right, and, and doing what one and two and three and four year olds do. You sound a lot like me. I, I always tell people that I'm an empath. I, I can feel how other people are mm. feeling and I can really detect um, if someone's, especially if I care about you, if you're off, like I can, I can really detect it. And, um, and over the years I've learned how to not allow people to drain me, but what I've realized though, is because I'm an empath, I'm, with that comes being um, an optimist, right? I think I tend to see the good in people and the good in things. And I tend to be the person that sometimes um, gets disappointed because I have all these happy feelings, right? For for people and things. Um, And so in a world that's not always rosy, where um, sometimes seeing things in different ways and different perspectives could be draining. How do you recharge and how do you remain sane? What do I do to recharge? Uh, It depends on the circumstance. I was talking with someone recently and they asked me, what do I do particularly when I'm down? And this isn't necessarily the same thing as recharging, but I love, I love television. I'm a homebody. I love movies. And my favorite movie is a documentary about Barb Marley. And it's called Marley and his kids made it. And so silly. But like when I had dreadlocks, people just assumed I knew so so much about Bob Marley. And I knew absolutely nothing about him. I just got dreadlocks because I wanted dreadlocks. Mm -hmm. But when that movie came out, I learned so much about him, so much about the different challenges that he experienced in his life. And how at the end of the day, he just wanted to bring just peace and resolution and things that make sense to a world that just brought him like strife and drama and rejection. And so if I'm ever like down, I watch that. And then by the time the movie's over, I just say, that's it. Like I'm, I'm done. Like I'm done feeling whatever because I've watched, and I used to do that actually Mm. before that movie came out, I used to do the same thing with the passion of the Christ. I would just watch it like anybody who's, you know, kind of been a martyr, just watching all the things that they've gone through in their life and them still having joy them taking on and meaning things to other people, but still, you know, doing what they have to do for themselves. Sometimes people could, I don't know, consider me like a recluse. And in some ways that is really helpful for me recharging in general. Uh, But being able to surround myself with people that I love, that love me and support me 
is a major recharge. My favorite, and I think this goes actually back to the questionnaire. So think about my best friend. She's like, you can come and just sit and hold the baby. And she's like, I don't have to entertain you. I was like, I'm grown. I don't need to be entertained. <laughs> she's like, oh, she's like, I don't have to wait on you. I was like, who? I'm like, who is coming over here asking you to wait on them? Like, send them to me. I will talk to them. I will correct them. <laughs> but my favorite thing to do oftentimes is just, you know, say to a friend before, you know, COVID, it would be, oh, you want to have a work date? Just sit and work on our computers in silence. And I like, I like that. I am like recharged by knowing somebody is there. Uh, not necessarily constantly engaging, like talking all the time, but just like having uh, an ability to coexist with others. And so I found a lot of strength actually during COVID because um, I've always been very far from many people that I'm extremely close to. And it's brought the world so much closer to me. Uh, I have like weekly calls with my family uh, we stay on Zoom from 12 until 6 every Sunday, playing games, uh, talking to each other, just supporting each other, making fun of each other, uh, giving each other a third degree. And that's something that I found great. Like, I've been related to my family my whole life, but we've never connected like that. And uh, I also do the same thing on like during the week with the group of friends that I usually take a vacation with. And I always look forward to the same vacation every summer. Like we go to Martha's Vineyard and we just do absolutely nothing. And that's like my favorite type of vacation where you don't do anything. And being able to just find time to reconnect with those moments of just being yourself and not really having the expectations on you has been my way of recharging. So when I'm alone, it's, you know, watching TV or a movie if I'm down, very specific movies that I use to bounce back out of it. And then having some consistent moments where I am surrounding myself with uh, loved ones to just connect in meaningful and silly ways sometimes. For me, just the freedom to be myself, just Natalie, not any job attached, not any like expectations attached, just being myself with people who, like like my friend said, don't need to be catered to or entertained, that can just also just be themselves. Um, that, that recharges me because it kind of reminds me of who I am and that I have a life beyond uh, the expectations that are placed on me from work or, you know, community or anything else. What's something that uh, people seem to misunderstand you about? Oh my gosh, people think that I'm mean and I'm not mean. I am direct. I don't smile, but that's not because I'm not mean. It's just because I'm, I take whatever I'm doing seriously. But that's something that gets misunderstood. And so I remember at one point in time, I was part of this um, like black student group and somebody suggested to me, why don't you consider putting a smiley face after you're not yelling at them? Why would anybody think I'm yelling at them? <laughs> but, like, well, your words, like, there's no fluff in there. I'm like, this is not a fluff message. I'm trying to deliver a news bulletin. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I just always, I th- that's one thing that I think I've always had to combat as well. I remember um, I worked at a hospital and I had a, 
the manager of the department that I worked at called me into their office and told me that someone thought that I was unapproachable. And I was like, that seems like that's their problem, not mine. And I find that this is something that, you know, happens to strong women of color often, um, especially in predominantly white male spaces. And I feel like education tends to be like one of those spaces. And so how do, you know, even when there is no fluff, but when, you know, people are blatantly being disrespectful. I let people, I let people hear do, themselves. I repeat really? back what they said. And they say, oh, I'm, I'm not, I didn't mean that way. I didn't say any type of way you meant it. I'm telling you what I heard you say. Is this what you intended for me to hear? Um, because I think people often, I, I'm sorry that I cut you off, but it, like, you really just got to like one of my pain points because people think that black women in particular, they have to be jolly or sassy or perfect. And I'm imperfect and quirky and quiet and thoughtful and I can be that. And that that really disrupts what people believe about black people, what people believe about black women and what it means about them. And when they encounter someone that makes them treat someone just in an unkind way or in an unprofessional way. And I said, well, you don't have a problem when Kevin acts like this. You know, you don't make Kevin sit in the cafeteria and have lunch with you. Why can't I have lunch at my computer? Yeah, you know, I think people, uh, you know, people would think that I am a extrovert because I'm friendly, you know, and uh, but I recharge at home. I recharge in my own space. And people don't understand that, that you can have, you know, extrovert qualities. But when it comes time to, like, slow down and get your bearings that some that it sometimes does not include other people. Um, and I find that especially hard to get fine lines at work, right? Because people want you to be sociable and things of that nature. Um, so how do, how do you navigate um, being an introvert? Are, are you an introvert? I don't want to assume. Oh my goodness. It is rough. It is rough. I am an introvert and I was in denial about it for about five years. And the more I denied it, the more introverted I became. So I just own it and that's fine. How does being an introvert in extrovert spaces, because you're a dean, that means you people a lot. I can't even imagine how much you people. Peopling is a thing. And um, I think, what is that like? Mm. Having to actually be extra, you know, extroverted, but you're an introvert. Yeah, I think for me, it's really helpful to have moments where I am off the clock, even if it is five minutes, a five minute like tech break, something where I'm completely unplugging from what I'm doing, because it will suck the life out of you. And I think sometimes people take for granted that I thought I don't think people there. I think people who know me well can definitely understand that I'm an introvert, but people who only see me in I guess, performative spaces, they're like, no. I'm like, well, mm. yeah, I'm putting on a show to, to do the job. <laughs> I said, 
said, I need, I, I need to talk to you. I need to work with you. We need to get this project done, but I don't need to micromanage you. I don't need you micromanaging me. I trust everyone to do their own independent work to come back together as a team. But I, so I think that's where like the introvert comes into play. It's a bit being a bit of a project manager and rather than a micromanager and being very trustful of the people that I work with or that I know that they'll do their part. And if I have a question, I'll reach out. And if they have a question, we'll reach out. But I don't believe every meeting needs to be a meeting. Many of them could be an email. Many of the emails don't even need to happen as well, because sometimes people, they're just, sometimes people need that, that constant contact and I need a break from it from time to time. And so I learned from a friend when when I was in school, I was like, you know, I was running around like trying to do something, like trying to read on my lunch break. And she's like, when I break, I break. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, I'm on my lunch break. I'm going to eat my lunch. And then when I'm done, I'll go back to doing work. She's like, the world is not going to stop because I didn't devote this 30, 45 minute block to doing what somebody else wanted. And the truth of the matter is I'm a much better person when I have those opportunities to set those healthy boundaries, Uh, whether it's personal or professional, just saying, no, this is my time. This is my space. I will get back to you then. It means people often joke. They're like, oh, you know, you're such a good friend. You're so helpful. You're so this, you're so that. I can always count on you. But I can also always count on your phone to be on Do Not Disturb. My phone is on Do Not Disturb probably 18 hours a day. Wow. And <laughs> but I'm also always on my phone, but I just don't need it like going right, right. off all the time. I definitely have the and notifications so that, off on my phone. And so sometimes I just want to sleep or do something in peace. And other times I'll just be like very caught up in a project. But I was like, well, just because I'm do not disturb doesn't mean you can't count on me. It just means I'll look at it on my time, not on your time. I will the mail will be delivered whenever it's delivered, but I will go to the mailbox and retrieve it when I'm ready. You know, when I have the capacity to do that. I definitely think that that's, that's a, that's something worth learning and implementing in life because I think we definitely have gotten used to having people at your beck and call, right? Like Mm -hmm. I call you, you're supposed to answer. I text you, you're supposed to answer. Um, And if I do both of those, that means it's an emergency when most times it's not, right? People are just wanting you to to answer them when they want their answer, um, when they want when they want it. And so I just think that I don't know how we got there um, and how how we feel entitled to other people's time. Yeah, that's really hard. And that's something that I struggle with because it's I take a lot of ownership in the things that I'm involved in and I might take more ownership than I should. But really being able to step back and saying the boundaries that I'm setting are healthy. The requests that you're making on my time are unhealthy. And being able to say that in a kind of a matter of fact way, I think is is really helpful. I think the thing about me that people appreciate is that I'm authentic. And I think because I am a, just a genuine person, I don't, I don't understand why people do all that extra fluff, like buttercup. Oh, good morning, sunshine. I love you so much. Like just say hi. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend who says, 
I was like, hey, girl, how you doing? She goes, you do know you can just ask me what you need to ask me. You don't have to do pleasantries. She's like, oh, I know you. Like, that's, that was, <laughs> that was, I was like, oh, OK. I had I had no nowhere to go with that. But then but to think of how um, for her, she was like, sometimes it's not sincere. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're doing it out of habit. You're not doing it out of because you actually want an answer. So if you're going to ask me how I'm doing, I would prefer that you do it and actually mean what you're asking me rather than just trying to get through, you know, something else that you that you need to ask me. Right. I really appreciate you saying that, because sometimes if I ask somebody how they're doing, that's just it. Most of the time when I ask somebody how they're doing, that's it. And then there's a long pause. And, you know, I find out, but if I want to ask you about something else, I cut through all the pleasantries and just like, Hey, you want to do this thing? Like, Hey, you want to do yoga tomorrow? Oh, I haven't talked to you in three months. What it like, <laughs> I, we both know that. Right. <laughs> but I'm you right now. Right. It, it, I, I think that, um, one thing that I've, I've, I've learned, um, the older I get is that kind of like, you know how animals don't really have a sense of time. You know, I feel like I've learned that type of um, mindset for friendships, right? Mm. There are times where I don't hear from my best friend for a couple of days, but I don't, I'm not going to the other end of saying, oh, she doesn't think about me or, oh, is our friendship in jeopardy? It could be, she could need some time, Mm -hmm. right? I could need some time. What can I be doing other than talking to her right now? go do something or do nothing. Um, and to give myself that space of saying distance is sometimes okay. And not to think that just because someone's not texting me every day, calling me every day, that there's a relationship issue. It could just mean that that's not like one of my closest, I call her my big sister. She hates talking on the phone. Mm. Absolutely hates it. And I hate texting, but <laughs> I would prefer to talk on the phone. Um, but because I know she'll answer me quicker than me trying to call her, what what is our main mode of co- communication? Texting. Mm. You know, do I want to do I want to talk to her or do I want her to comply to my way of communication? I want to talk to her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. oftentimes we get caught up on trying to get someone to comply to what we want to do rather than what's your ultimate goal here? Is it to hear from me? Or is it to have me bend at your will? What is it? Yeah, that really speaks really loud to me. I've been wrestling with this thing for, I guess, a while, thinking about, do you want it your way or do you want to be in relationship? Mm. You know, do you know if we're going to be working together, do you want to get the work done or do you want someone to do the work the way you say? And at the end of the day, for me, it's about being in relationship and it's about the work and it's not about having one person winning and having their way or anything like that. But when you were talking, I was thinking about what I shared before about how, you know, my closest friends are always so far away from me. And so my best friend, the one who, you know, contributed to the questionnaire, <laughs> and we have a friendship day and friendship day is the 22nd of every month. We have a Google calendar invite. We've had it for about five years now and it's call, text, FaceTime, whatever. And it's just, just check in because a whole month, maybe two months could go by, maybe even three. And we haven't spoke to each other 
And it's just because we're so caught up in our own stuff, like in our own lives, the stuff that we weren't necessarily prepared for, that there was no handbook for, that like your best friend probably can't help you navigate through. Um, but because it's somebody who loves and cares about you, we do have a moment set aside to say, hey, girl, what's going on? One time, like it might be one person just completely downloading. Uh, another time it might be, it just might be a few minutes, like in between doing an activity or in the car. But just being able to have that moment to reconnect has been really, really helpful. And just knowing that, you know, we're good. And if there was something that was not good, it would have came up like far before the 22nd of the month. <laughs> not only that, but I think having a specific day saying, hey, like this is our time to also hold each other, hold each other accountable. Right. Like if you mm-hmm. knew that I say, hey, I'm, I'm working on this thing. It's your time to also let me know that you heard me, which I think is something else that mm. makes that's that's um that's hard for some people sometimes just hearing someone. And so that's another thing that I've been um, in my friendships trying to not, not necessarily just regurgitate stuff, but actually say, Oh, they told Mm -hmm. me that they were working on this. I wonder, and most times they're like, Oh, you remembered that? Because you know, that there tends to be a, um, we kind of go through life and not really take in the moments. And so, you know, I, I, I really mm. enjoyed, uh, that's why that part uh, on question three, when your uh, friend said, your best friend said that you see things that other people don't, um, and that you're observant, it's because, uh, you know, I, that caught me because I was like, you probably, you probably remember things like that. Like, there's this thing that she said that she was, and it would, like, you would randomly send me podcast um like uh software or anything you saw that had like you like oh just send in this and and you didn't have to this is so like i said i'm like probably painfully introspective and i don't think this counts as an actual love language but memory is my love language and if i remember something like really specific about you when that when I have when that memory like comes back to surface, I'm going to reach out. And I think that is a gift that I have that helps me stay connected because when I think about somebody, I'll connect and I wonder how they're doing and you know, rather than get caught up in, oh my gosh, I haven't talked to them so long and I, I need to learn all these things about them and come up with this excuse and just like no, like this is my way of saying like I think I'm thinking about you and I care about you and like I'm on your team and I'm I want to hear more about what's going on with this. If this doesn't work, okay, cool. I'll start looking for something else. It's not like I'm spending it's not like I spent the past like five months like looking for um, you know, new microphones for you. Right, like, right, right. But it's like, oh I saw this and I thought of you. Um yeah. you know, sometimes it's like a picture, sometimes it's uh just like a gif or inside joke type of thing but I like to acknowledge feelings you know when I have them acknowledge memories when I have them because I think sometimes people can get caught up in like no I remember very clearly you said that it was like I'm not gonna go back and forth about what I remember what you remember (laughs) I'm just I'm gonna take the good and like and like it was a good memory that came back and I'm gonna put it back good to you and then just keep moving forward yeah because I think for me I was like wow she she didn't have to do that. Right. And, and not that I was looking for you to send me new software, you know, podcast softwares every week. It was, it was a, it's so inspiring for me um, to have someone do that because it reminded me 
not to have just superficial relationships um, because that's as small as it is, it's not a superficial act. Do you know what I mean? It was specific to me, specific to things that you and I have discussed and you could have just went, oh, that's cool. And then, oh, let's just do one of those and just bypassed it. But you said, mm, I'll send it, <laughs> you know, like, oh, look at this. Um, so one of my other questions is, so what makes you feel inspired and like your best self? That is rough. That is rough. <laughs> you could at least put that. That was a really good segue, wasn't it? <laughs> I think when I see other people, when I see other people shining, when I see other people thriving, it inspires me and I am just genuinely happy for them. And it just makes me want to just be consistent or switch something up uh, and just reevaluate the moment that I'm in and saying, not necessarily like a comparison, but just inspired by what someone else has done. I think the best example I have for this would be when I would see somebody, when I had my hair locked and I would see somebody with locks that were either at a stage that I hadn't gotten to or at a stage that I had been at. And it would just be like, oh my gosh, your hair is so beautiful. It is so healthy. It is so hydrated. It is a beautiful color. Like those types of things. And and I think like, hmm, yeah, I can like, I should maybe like wash my hair. I should like maybe like do another style or something like that. Or just being able to see someone else shine. It makes me, it just makes me like want to pull myself together a little bit more, even though like the podcast today, even though like this is a virtual, like we're on the phone. I said, oh, well, let me undo my hair. Let me untwist my hair. Yeah, this week, <laughs> this is a, like, this is a big deal. Like, I don't take it. I got to take it like seriously. And so. Yeah. When you said that, I was like, girl, <laughs> you could have been, we could have both been in here with bonnets on and no one would have known. Yes. Yes. It could. It, that could have been, but. I, I just out of I did, okay. Obviously, I didn't like put on a ball gown or anything, but I did do right, it. Right, right, right. But it was just like I'm so inspired <laughs> by what you're doing, by being able to witness it as it's happening. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. it just makes me want to just take those little steps that that make me better, uh, that make me stronger. I was talking with a friend the other day, and she was saying how tough this this moment is that we're all in. And that we, all of us that are alive on this planet right now, are here on purpose. You know, all of our ancestors got us to this moment right now. And so we need to be our best possible selves. So do what we have to do to take care of us so that we can continue to exist in this time, inspire others, strengthen others, and do the work that that we're put here to do. So when I see somebody shine, it just makes me want to, you know, floss my teeth or, you know, just do like the little. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so I told you how you inspired me. Do you have a story of how you've inspired others? Like, has anyone ever told you other than me? I, I cannot say that I've like inspired anyone, but as a teacher, I've, always had especially like as a classroom teacher I've always had like students in the class and the thing that has been consistent is I do not like kids so I don't have a favorite student because I think you're all out of control Um, (laughs) I respect you all as humans 
And that's why I'm doing this. That's why I'm teaching you. I'm teaching you because I respect you. So if you have an A in this class, it's because you earned it. It's definitely not because you're Miss Perry's favorite because Miss Perry doesn't like anyone in here. She respects us all, <laughs> but she doesn't have a favorite. And that, you know, kind of like rubbed off with people. And it was like, yeah, she don't have no favorites. And it's like, I don't. <laughs> I just, I'm just, I'm just trying to get through this. But I, I ran into some students at a funeral for uh, someone who deeply inspired me. And it was a principal that I had. I had lived in Maryland for a while, and I taught at this school. I had gone in not even for my own interview, but for an interview of a friend. And I was just waiting in the lobby and the woman invited me in and she ended up giving me a job too. And that woman, she was just a force to be reckoned with. She did not take no for an answer. She put students first. She put family first. She just didn't take no for an answer. And it's like, oh, well, you know, you don't have any problems with the principal. I was like, yeah, because I do my job. I was like, I'm not playing around. I'm just, you know, teaching the kids like I'm supposed to. Like, I don't know how, what are the rest of y'all doing that um, you're afraid of her? I'm like, if you do your work, then there's nothing to be afraid of. And so went to this woman's funeral and it was just massive. Like how many lives she touched, how many people that, you know, she worked with or, or, you know, retired and came back and retired and came back and did it again. And I'm sitting there and I just see like some of the students that I had and some of them I was kind of like ducking and some of them I was like, happy to see. And so this one couple, they were like sitting next to me. They're like, oh yeah, we're married now. I was like, you're married? Uh, they was like, yeah, good thing you put us in that same group. And I was like, you got in a relationship because... <laughs> Match maker. You got in a relationship because <laughs> yes. I put you... Because the seat in assignment <laughs> that I made. And they're like, yeah. And so the, you know, the wife, she later told me, she's like, yeah, I, you know, wasn't super thrilled about the seating assignment that you made um, because she was just like a super like together student. Like she really should have been the teacher. Like that's how together she was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. girls mature faster than boys. And so the boy, he, he needed two teachers, <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the day, uh, yeah, they were together. And so it was like at the funeral, they told me like, Oh, you know, she's expecting us like, Oh my gosh. I was like, you know, when she do, and she said, you know, when she was due, and it was like kind of close to my birthday. I'm like, well, if it's a girl, you got to name it Natalie. And they're like, we're not doing that. I was like, think about it, think about it. <laughs> and then they actually thought about it and they did. And I thought that was like the greatest like honor. They named the baby Natalie? Yeah. That is. And, and you started this, wait a minute. You started the story I was saying. You can't say that you've inspired people. <laughs> a, two students named their baby after you. <laughs> and it's interesting because it's not like, I, I don't think that if you ask them that I was their favorite teacher, like that's not true. Um, and they both, I guess they didn't like the seat in the assignment that I made <laughs> either, but it was really impactful. And I think that's the thing that I do. Like I try to live a life that has impact. I try to do work that's going to have impact. And so I don't know, you know, sometimes I hear, you know, sometimes I hear about people who went on in a particular field and I'm really inspired by the students that I've had, by the friends that I've had, by people that I've met along the way. But just knowing that I've had an impact on someone's life, that's, that's the best thing for me. That makes me feel really satisfied. And so, um, 
so yeah, little Natalie, I, I feel like that is such an honor, you know, having having her and knowing that that goes back to just me trying to manage a classroom. <laughs> yeah, that that's an, wow. I'm stu- that is a great story. I'm just so mad that you started it off by I can't say that I've ins- really inspired people, but that's that's inspiring. You know, I think some even when I think back to some of my favorite teachers, it wasn't the teachers that I could run all over that were my favorites. It were the ones that treated me like an adult, um, allow me to voice my opinion if it was, you know, well-founded, <laughs> well-supported. Um, but it was the teacher that challenged me. And I feel like that's the teacher that prepared me for what college was going to be like. Mm-hmm. And what the world was going to be like. It's probably the only class from high school I remember. One of very few. Wow. Of four years <laughs> in an institute. It's one of the one teachers that had such a remarkable um, you know, moment in my life. Because came, he came at me like I knew what I was talking mm. about. You know, like he, there was no, I wasn't a kid in his class. That's amazing. Because that's what you want. Like, that's what I want for, like, everyone just to take ownership over their lives, over their choices, and not just be, like, on some type of machine. And so I think that is, if you learn that in high school, you're ahead of the game because there are adults that haven't sorted that bit out yet. I would love to see you in a teacher setting. I really would. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. I'll, I'll send you the video. There's a video? <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah, we always had to make we always had to make videos for when we were like going out on the job market, and so I guess mine is on a DVD. But they're not good. They're not glamorous. Let me tell you. <laughs> but what's your favorite? So you're and when you were, are you still teaching? Do you still teach? No, so I don't teach anymore. I, my favorite thing that I used to do in the summers was teach the summer school program at the summer school program at Cambridge, mm-hmm. and it was for students who either wanted to just get ahead for the next school year or they needed to make up a class that they failed and they put those same students in the class together Mm. and so that was my favorite thing to do and like you got to teach whatever you wanted so I taught my favorite class was some class I made up was called African-American history through music and it was five weeks going through um U.S. history through the lens of African-American music and I loved it Sometimes there were like there were only like five kids enrolled in the class, and kids don't like that. They like to have buffer. They like to have you know fifteen twenty people in there because they don't want to be seen. Teenagers right. don't, don't want to be on seen. Me. <laughs> but you know we were really able to get to like kind of like a I don't know like almost like a scholarly discussion type space, and that's what I wanted to train them to do to be confident you know, in things. And so I kind of tricked them into writing a research paper and doing a PowerPoint and all this other stuff and learning about music that they didn't necessarily care about. And, you know, some in some years, the class worked better than others, but I always had a lot of fun doing that. But traditionally, I was a high school social studies teacher. I taught psychology. That's where uh, the lovebirds met <laughs> in my psychology <laughs> class. Actually, mm-hmm. I need to take credit because I got another set of lovebirds that were in the class that are now married. See, okay, look, follow up with them. But. <laughs> so I love the whole uh, hip hop. I mean, like uh, history through music thing. Like 
So I'm going to put you on the spot. How, what song, mm-hmm. <laughs> what would be the song that you would pick for 2020? Oh my gosh, 2020. It doesn't have to be a song of 2020, right? No. Okay. Whatever, however you would design your curriculum. Like how, how did you have your students pick a song? Was <sighs> it in that year? So yeah, so this is great. So we talked about, we just broke it up over like different genres. So we started out with like slavery and spirituals. We talked about jazz and reconstruction. We talked about civil rights and soul music. And we talked about rock and roll and the birth of that. And And then when we got into modern times, we did talk about hip hop and trying to make sense of things and I'm trying to think if there is I don't think quite honestly I don't think that 2020 was a a hip-hop moment (laughs) in my Uh eyes I think it was definitely a it was definitely a blues moment Definitely a blues Nina Simone type moment. There is so much hurt that happened. And it does mm-hmm. kind of remind me of like the 1920s. Sorry. Where it's like, you know, I have all these lynchings that are going on and you mm-hmm. have you know, economic issues and you have, we had, you know, we have this, you know, Spanish flu, you know, whatever that was going on back then. So a lot of death around us and it's just a lot to, to feel and I think there's mm-hmm. some type of music that's like really like feeling music as I always liked um I always liked, like Erica Badu and Lauren Hill because sometimes they just get on the mic and just wail you know and just feel so oh if I oh wait okay time to put you on the spot so if I was able to answer this question yes. would you be able to sing the song <laughs> No. <laughs> okay, well then I'll just put the vibe out there. That's the vibe. I haven't like I'll keep thinking, but that's the vibe. Like, you know, a bluesy, soulful. Couldn't even think of I asked the question and I couldn't think of a song. Um, if anything, it's probably a gospel song for me. Well, as you were talking, you said gospel and I said it wasn't going to be hip hop, but I would say this is America hits it. Mm. for me um the childish gambino this is america because there is like a gospel element you know in the back of that and because there it's just soulful it's it's challenging it's it's a lot going on at once that actually might be the um, song no, no, no. That it might, might that I'm might actually work because I think, yeah. you know, it, it's it's moved over into 2021. But that's something that we continue to hear is like, this is in America. And it's like, no, no, no. This is America. Y'all, was that not such an incredible conversation? Towards the end of our interview, we had some technical difficulties. So my last question that I was asking Natalie was, what did she want the listeners to gain from this conversation that we had and she said she wanted people to take away that being authentic goes a long way and I definitely got that uh, message from my conversation with Natalie today she dropped so many gems I hope you enjoyed listening to her as much as I enjoyed talking to her but I want you guys to remember that authenticity 
requires vulnerability, transparency, and most importantly, integrity. Until next time, bye.